from the Office of Student Research at Roosevelt University. This is The Theory Club. Hi, Emily. How are you? Hello. I'm doing good. Great. Well, welcome everybody to the Theory Club. I'm sure by now your favorite podcast that comes out on Fridays. Um, <laughs> for our first season. Today we're going to be talking about Shostakovich and his uh, Symphony Number no. Ten in E Minor, and we're going to be specifically talking about the second movement. Um, I'm very excited because this was one of the first, or maybe the first piece we like listened together during one of our many random yeah. conversations. <laughs> and it really stuck out to me as a really quite a striking piece. Um, can you tell us, Emily, about uh, when you encountered this piece, performing this piece, what you know drew you to it in the first place? Yeah, so um, actually, over a year ago, I can't even believe it. It was my audition music for Allstate. And it was specifically for the honors Allstate Orchestra. And so I, I, you know, I learned the audition music. I really enjoyed it. I think I listened to that one the most because it was my first time ever playing Shostakovich. And it's very challenging, especially the violin part. So I didn't think I was going to make the honors orchestra though. So I was kind of sad. I was like, oh, I'm not going to really get to play it. And then we got results from our audition like 20 minutes before our first rehearsal. And somehow I made the honors orchestra. So I was like, oh my God. And I had to prepare right away. I'm like, I'm playing Shostakovich. And then the other one um, was Tchaikovsky. And at that time, Tchaikovsky was my favorite composer. So I was like, oh, this is great. Like Shostakovich seems fun. And Tchaikovsky is my favorite composer. So it was like a win-win situation. And I think it was kind of like the like I will never forget that first rehearsal because we rehearsed I think it was like about four hours that night and then almost like all day the next day and then the concert was the day after and I think it was when you listen to it you can feel the adrenaline and the power and it just like never lets go like it's just constantly going and I think knowing like oh I just made honors all state um I had a really great stand partner in previous times that like at state and like those related things I had, you know, just not so kind stand partners, but my stand partner was super kind. Um, I was in the first violin section. So I just felt that high note power as I was shifting everywhere. And um, also I'm usually always for like all state related things. I was always on the inside of the stands. I was always turning the page, but this time I was on the outside of the stand. So I was really playing the higher notes and I felt just more in power, like sitting there. So I think with those rehearsals and just being surrounded by so many amazing people because I realized when you make that honors level everyone is just absolutely amazing like we we almost play all the same like style and everything it was really amazing and our conductor was I think too watching the conductor a lot he really was a great conductor and he just um he was very short and like tiny, but he would like jump on the podium and like everything for that piece. Um, and then plus there, like my director was there. So I felt just really proud of myself that I made the honors for her. And then um, 
there are some other people I knew there that were just faculty there and it, like watching us rehearse because everyone's like, oh, it's the honors orchestra. So it was just a huge moment, I think for me. And then once we were playing it, like my heart was racing, not because I was nervous, I was actually pretty calm, but just because of like the constant like tempo going and like the loud forte. And plus we all knew the music really well because it was on the audition. So you didn't really have to be too worried about notes because it was like in our systems so when you know a piece that well you can really let go and like focus on what's going on around you which i think was really exciting um <clears throat> and so it was after the rehearsals and the concerts that i went home and i bought shostakovich's biography and i wanted to read about kind of his life but like it also talked about each piece that he wrote and like what was going on around that time and why he wrote each piece and especially then when I was reading about the second movement, I thought there was just some funny, funny stories and interesting things that went along with it. And the feedback that he got from writing this, I think was also interesting that I was going to touch on a bit once we get into it. But that was, I mean, it's over a year later and Tchaikovsky is still like my second favorite composer, but Shostakovich has definitely ranked number one. I think it was that experience for sure, but also, the more I read about him, the more I liked him and the more I listened to more of his music, even more that I like how he writes music. So that was my experience in getting into this piece. Great, thank you for sharing all that. Uh, a few interesting things that are popping up for me as you were talking. One is how <laughs> you know our positive or negative experiences around the production and performance of a piece can really inform you know, the performance of the piece itself can inform how we feel about the piece and that composers. So I'm glad that you have so many like positive associations mm -hmm. with it. I'm trying to think back to when I was in high school, if I had any particular pieces or composers that I gravitated towards. I remember play playing some box stuff for a for like competitions that I did when I was in like middle school and liking lists mm -hmm. when I was in high school. But there's not a there's not a ton that really popped out to me. So it's nice that even, you know, at that level that we would maybe associate with being less experienced, you still took the initiative to like have pieces that you actually liked and like take a stance on like mm -hmm. this is the type of music that I like to play or the type of you know styles or composers that I gravitate towards. And I'm gonna do the work as far as like finding out a bit more about them and how their lives influence their compositions and stuff like that. So that's really cool that you were able to take that initiative at, you know, a younger age. Um, and interesting how, yeah, knowing kind of the background and the biography and the history of a composer does really influence your relationship to their music. I know that for me, last year I had an assignment where uh, I was looking at Leonard Bernstein, he composed that mass, which was like, you know, a kind of his spin and his take on the traditional like Catholic mass. And it's just like this really beautiful stage production. It was premiered at the Kennedy Center, especially at a time where, you know, it was shortly after the assassination of Kennedy. So it was like this really intense moment of so many people entering, you know, Vietnam this really intense political moment as far as everybody like what's going on where is God in all of this and so he made this incredible commentary and knowing more about his life 
uh, and about how musically inclined he was and also how many American composers were gay and in relationships with each other. Did you know that? There are so many. And I just feel like I really didn't. (laughs) I know, right. His relationship with like Aaron Copeland and like, especially like the 20th century I find that really fascinating that maybe it would present itself as a space uh during the 20th century for people a part of like the LGBTQIA plus community um but even how again like knowing a composer's history backstory worldviews can inform pieces like now that I'm doing you know, my project for the conference, which we will talk about in a later episode. Um, (laughs) And, you know, I'm doing a project about Florence Price and William Dawson and their symphonic works as Blacks in the um, 20th century in America. And I know a bit more about Amy Beach's views on Black music that was not... She really missed the mark and it's really disappointing because I adore Amy Beach's music, but I have to take that into account and be willing to see her as a full person and not excuse her bad takes just because I love her music, Mm -hmm. right? Probably the big like uh, classical music composer example is Wagner, who was, you know, famously anti-Semitic and... When we have conversations about, you know, separating the art from the artist and the music from the musician, I I don't quite know how helpful those kinds of conversations really are. And if we're, I don't know what I'm trying to say. Oof, let me not get too off topic, but. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, no, it makes me think though, my first encounter with Wagner was my junior year of high school because it was for an IMEA audition. And I can, before I even researched him at all, because I would always do that beforehand, uh, I just brought the music to my teacher and we kind of just briefly went through it. I was like, oh, this is a really pretty piece. He's like, yeah, isn't this melody just so beautiful? And he's like, it's amazing. And then he starts kind of going on because I think it is like a teacher's responsibility when you're you know, entering that area to always address it. And I just remember him calling Wagner a bad name. I will not say it on the podcast, but he just swore in my lessons like, yeah, right. Like this is what he was because, you know, he, he believed this and like we treasure his music, but we're not recognizing that. He's like, so I want you to know that. And I'm, I just remember being like, oh, wow. Okay. And then I went home and I looked into it a bit more and I was like, oh, and then about a year later, I had to play a, that same exact piece by him and it was never addressed in our orchestra, which I thought was really weird. Like my, t- my private teacher addressed it. And then when we actually played it in orchestra, it was just never said. I mean, there were some younger kids there. I would say maybe the youngest was like eight or nine, but I think still it should be addressed. There's mm-hmm. ways to verbalize it without like, you know, scaring people. Right. And I mean, the argument of, <clears throat> as far as like, oh, they're too young for you to bring that up or for them to be able to understand i'm sorry the way that we <laughs> expect children of color to grow up pretty quickly um because of the racial tensions political situation in america like and the history of systemic and institutional racism and the way that they are expected to grow up the way that 
even black parents themselves look at their children oh yeah and actually it got me thinking i can't remember we had a conversation before about this and i feel like i saw it somewhere online where people make the argument that we can't talk about racism until a certain age but it's like i would think back to being in like elementary school and we would have like drills for if there was someone with a gun in the school and we would have to do that in kindergarten and nowadays it happens in like preschool it's like so we can address that but we can't address something that <laughs> is a much I want to say a much bigger issue I don't want to like downgrade you know obviously that but still a much bigger issue it, it's definitely a very flawed argument I think that yeah people and kind again, of avoid no black parent is having a conversation as far as like when's the appropriate time to tell my child that they will be treated differently because of their skin color it is a privilege to not uh feel rushed or pressured to have to have that conversation with your child if you are a white parent with white children so should i cut all this out oh no we can leave it just yeah (laughs) (laughs) okay so right we got here because of composers and shasti i was like what did i do okay but yeah i'm glad that you have such a great you know association with this piece and that you were i wasn't really paying attention to the pieces i was like ooh status but I wasn't really super affected by and I wonder if that's maybe I didn't have as much of an affinity for the viola as I thought that I did like I off I absolutely don't regret playing the viola and I think it's a really beautiful instrument but I don't know my relationship to music changed when I became a, a singer and really felt pulled by opera so right You know, I do think too, I didn't do much of that my junior year when I made like Allstate, but then once it got to my senior year, I think especially through violinists, I was much more aware of the competition. And once you got to that level, it was like, you better know the background of this piece if you want to be able to play it correctly. And I do think too, that's probably why I was able to do well was because I knew that and it affected my musicality a bit more. Sure, sure. Yeah. Um... I just had to um, Google it to make sure I was getting the name right. The only Mm -hmm. piece that I remember, I was, yeah, I think it was my senior year when I was at regionals. We played Egmont Overture by Beethoven. Oh, yeah. That song slaps. We should do an episode (laughs) of that song. Um, But that's really the only one that I can remember thinking back to. I'm like, oh, wow, I used to love that song. And I loved playing it at regionals. Even I kind of like bombed that chair audition. I was like second to last chair. It's fine. (laughs) (laughs) but yeah it was great okay so how about we just take a listen to the piece and then we will talk about it of my seat <laughs> <laughs> what a 
game. That's so hard. I can't believe you played that. <laughs> yeah. And like I said, the people, they did a really good job in choosing excerpts from that piece. They were long excerpts, but they made sure that everyone knew the crazy parts. So we were able to focus on the other parts and let go. Like both hands knew what they were doing. If they didn't, well, <laughs> we were in big trouble, but we all knew what we were doing. So, mm-hmm. yeah. But I find it so interesting, especially now, even looking back into it, I didn't pay too much attention to how there's literally one piano in the entire movement. And there's like two diminuendos. And it's just like even the short piano section, but everything is the same tempo, fast, forte, and there's just like absolutely no relief. I think too, that's probably why, I know sometimes Shostakovich argued it was too short or that he should have made it a bit longer, but I mean... I think of it like a tornado, like tornadoes normally aren't on the ground for that long. And it's just like one fast, like tornado going around. And like, I, I think I like the length of it. I don't, I feel like if he would have made it longer, it would have taken away from its purpose. And I think too, the reason why he started questioning it was um, at one of the conferences about his piece, they were saying it wasn't, um, like it didn't show the Soviet views of music enough. And that's why he never won an award for that piece, which I still think is crazy because it is one of his very well-known pieces today, especially that movement. And it was kind of disregarded. What are the just like general things that stand out to you that you like about it? Ooh, um, I mean, I think I like how there's um, while he keeps it loud and like the melody is just like constantly. I'm trying to think how to explain this because he keeps it constantly loud, and he also kind of like throws the melody around to each instrument. And normally you'd think like, okay, the brass is going to get the really loud section and then the violins are going to have like this like softer section or something but it's not necessarily written that way if you like really look at the score mm-hmm. I mean the violins I know we have like we have some of the longer loud stuff as well and even like the other sections like the brass though also like I think he does a good job at like throwing it around there's no specific part where these instruments get this part and these get this. He just, he throws it all around to like every single section, which I thought was cool because I remember in rehearsal, we were constantly being reminded to direct our attention to each section when they had the fast part and then who had the loud heavy notes and it all went around. So I was constantly, sometimes he'd have us like look at them and watch them. And other times he'd have us like listen while we're playing our part. And it was really good to just help us being younger like being aware of each section and where we should be focusing on especially because in this piece you can't get lost if one section gets lost the piece is ruined because it is so fast and for us this was like a a huge argument actually at state I remember um it's a fast piece and the tempo written is fast but for all state we have to play in like 
an ice arena. I mean, they put like carpeted stuff down like on the ice, obviously, but it's a huge space and the sound could get lost so quickly. Wait, an, that uh, wait, an ice arena, <laughs> roll it back. What do you mean by that? <laughs> like like a literal, like, yes. And there's stuff they put down like over the ice to like keep the cold underneath. It's still what? fairly cold in there, but yeah. <laughs> It was like that both years I was there. I think I think it's always like that too. <laughs> so you think I Serena, the ceilings, everything is so big in there. And you're playing that piece and the sound is just going everywhere. That's so, bonkers. Yeah. <laughs> so in fear of the sound getting lost and like being a second behind and then everything being thrown off, our conductor took it a bit slower. So it wasn't as exciting when we were playing it, but we understood the reason why. We don't want to get lost in the Allstate concert. That would be a mess. And there were some other adults there that were actually angry about it and that they wanted it to be faster. Um, I, I could hear a few conversations about it and I knew some people there that were the adults. So I was talking to them and I was like, how do you feel about the tempo? And they're like, oh, it's, it's just terrible. Like it has to be faster. It's not conveying what he wanted. And I was just like, oh my God, like this is a big deal, is it? So. I thought that was interesting, but in the end, even though we didn't get to take it at that tempo, I'm blaming it on the ice arena. Um, <laughs> nothing fell apart. It was a smooth performance. And overall, I think we we did a good job with what we had, but oh gosh, I have my biography book in front of me and I just, I have to share this quote because I thought it was hilarious when I was reading <clears throat> about this piece. Um, while he was writing all four movements and he was working while he was working on the second movement then it says i'm quoting from this book one day a sparrow had flown in through the window and during the commotion as they tried to shoot it out the frightened bird had relieved itself on the score of shostakovich's symphony and then one of his friends and his family saw it as a lucky omen for the symphony's future success which is ironic. I think it's a it's a funny situation, yeah. but it's also kind of ironic because he never won an award for it. They considered it as not a Soviet style of music, sure. but nowadays it's a very popular movement. So interesting. <laughs> I was laughing so hard when I read that, but I think it's it's kind of funny, like how things worked out. Like at the time, it wasn't deemed appropriate music, or it didn't you know, live up to the values that they wanted at the time. But now that there's more individuality like allowed in music, sure. it's a lot more liked today. Sure. An interesting concept, more individuality, because I mean, we touched on it in our last podcast as far as like, what does individuality and having an individual persona actually mean? Perhaps it's different for composers versus performers. Um, but you know, that does, that does tend to happen with a lot of, of composers. Unfortunately, they only, their pieces only are, you know, recognized or, you know, performed and revived after their death. Um, especially in the case of a lot of women composers or composers of color. Interesting. We'll also just have to have a whole other episode about literally that sentence of, of what you said. <laughs> It's not what the composer would have wanted. That's a whole, oh, God. 
It's also like, yeah, who knows what the composer would have wanted. If he knew our circumstances, we're in a nice arena. How do you want us to take this? <laughs> I just don't. We'll just have to have a whole episode on like the concept of genius in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, and and yeah, honoring the composer's wishes that they so clearly wrote in the score and like the praise mm-hmm. of the score itself. Um, I have thoughts. <laughs> We're going to talk about it a different time. Yeah, I mean, the first thing that really sticks out to me is his use of of rhythms. Like the rhythms are so complex and there are all these you know, syncopations, polyrhythms that are so fascinating. It almost strikes me as very like Rite of Spring-like, right? Like it's kind of Stravinsky-like. And his use of percussion. In another life, I was a percussionist. (laughs) When the snare hits, oh my goodness. It's so striking and, and, and wonderful. It just steals all of my attention when that snare comes in, when the timpani. It's so good. Right. And that goes back to how I was saying, like every single instrument has something wild, like in their parts, like very, you either have like a long note melody or you're playing insane rhythms, just like, and tons of notes. So there's just absolutely so much going on in every single section. Yeah. That's why it was definitely good that we got to pay attention to each section and kind of recognize that. Cause it's so interesting too, to think about him actually writing that piece and like trying to put together all these little intricate parts and making sure everything came across the way he wanted. Yeah, I think also I I totally forgot to mention um, for the second movement, it took him 22 days to write it, (laughs) which is crazy. That's so short. No, oh my gosh, that's so short. (gasps) Yeah, I mean, I know he, the first movement's very long. I know he struggled with writing that one. And then the third movement's really interesting as in like um, some pitches that he put in <clears throat> in there. And I'm not so sure about the last movement, but yeah, even though it, like it's a short movement, you think, okay, a short number of days, but there is a lot going on in there. It's like, you need, you, wow. He must've spent like hours a day working on that. Or if it just kind of, if he was thinking about it for a while before he wrote it. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, and there's a part towards the end where, you know, the horns like take over the main melody and the way that the layering is like set up, it's so fascinating and
okay, okay, okay. So it's after the <laughs> so it's after the part where the where the strings do the and then the horns like come in. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. I like your singing example of it too. I'll put it in the podcast. I'll edit it in. Before, but yeah, the part where the where the and then the horns like come in. What an incredible like like rhythmic buildup, and mm-hmm. like the way that the stage is set for the incredible layering of the horns. It's like the most fascinating. Oh, I love it. Ah, oh, my goodness. Mm-hmm. It does feel too like it's always building to something. I feel like when I was playing it, I was never letting my guard down. It was always going into something, except for the one moment where, even though, even that one moment where it drops the piano. Sure, that's a very, very striking <clears throat> harmonic. Or, or sorry, yeah, harmonic and I, I feel like too, like at least for our section, that part was probably the hardest part of the piece for us violinists. So I feel like I never really let my guard down throughout that entire piece, or I never really felt a release. Because even as it was going down in volume, there, there we were going to like these crazy rhythms and awkward pitches with all these chromatic notes. And sure. yeah, so like I said, it's just one long tornado, just craziness. And then, yeah, finally it all kind of like resolves into the end. That is interesting. I mean, like, obviously there are like musical phrases, but it does feel like it's just a constant like waiting to end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe that's what caused my injury <laughs> playing that piece. <laughs> Single-handedly. Oh no. <laughs> um, are there any other pieces by Shostakovich that you really like? Ooh, um, specific pieces. I'm trying to think. There really, it's it's a sad thing. That is the only piece I've ever actually played. Um, that's Shostakovich. I would love to play more, but I do really appreciate his violin concerto. That may be biased because I'm a violinist, but I think it's also because I like his style and the way he composes. So the fact that there's a violin concerto, I would love to play that someday. I think I probably wouldn't get a chance to play it um, in like university because it's not commonly played too. It's not really in the common repertoire for violinists, but I would love to play it sometime. I know I did a little bit of research after I did the 10th symphony on number five. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never gotten to play it, but I, I really do enjoy that one as well. And this is kind of going to the same piece, but the third movement I think is really interesting in this one because he uses certain pitches to like spell out. I know like he, he spelled out his initials through the was it through the French horn in the third movement but I also know um yeah that was in the third movement um one of his friends Almira he used like e-a-e-d-a to kind of like transcribe like those notes through the French horn part like for her name in the movement and I I think I've, I found that really interesting too when I was listening to it I really I think it's a good movement too to follow the second movement, but I also think that's such a creative way to like yeah, acknowledge cool someone. And I know, right? Like I feel like if someone did that for me, I just feel like, oh, I would just like never want to stop listening to it. Um, but yeah, basically just to answer that question, yeah. Unfortunately, I haven't really gotten into many 
Shostakovich pieces, I hope, and that could also be COVID related. We don't get to play as much orchestral repertoire as we'd like, um, but I'm sure we'll touch on some other pieces. But really, yeah, this was the only one that I've played and I've kind of gotten into listening to number five a bit and especially the violin concerto. It's great. Great. Um, well, do you have anything else that you want to mention? Um, hmm. Well, I think, I mean, for me. yeah, I mean, this is kind of like hard to like touch into, but there was always like the question of what he wrote the second movement about, because he is kind of notorious for saying that he wrote it about something, but also if you recognize his private like little world, it could be about something completely different. So thinking about like the wars going on in that time, it's like, well, would that represent maybe how he was feeling with that? Or does it represent something else like inside him about how music was perceived that time, how you had to compose a certain way? So I feel like there will never really be a true answer to that. But I always do wonder like what necessarily he wrote it about um, because there was like one brief quote by him where he said something about he wanted it to convey human emotions and passion. So it's like, huh, I wonder where that fits into maybe how he was um, influenced by what was going on during his lifetime around that time or like what human emotions he wanted specifically to convey. It's like a really good question. I feel like we'll never know. <laughs> Right. And again, it goes back to that whole idea of this isn't what the composer would have wanted, like us feeling that we have the authority to guess and assume composers intentions uh, rather mm -hmm. than maybe feeling empowered to make our own decisions based on what they put in the score. To me, all the guesswork, it strikes me as kind of cringy, although I, I recognize that, you know, composers have certain styles, right? They have certain uh, tendencies and things that are unique to them and their compositions. Uh, so we're, you know, we're able to make educated guesses about like, oh, based on this other piece I know about Shostakovich, he probably wanted this, or he meant this when he wrote this into the score. And of course there are, you know, composers that are a bit more notorious for like writing everything into the score specifically and if they didn't mm -hmm. leave it like I would associate that with like everything that I've sung from Benjamin Britten uh if he wanted it he would have written it if it's not there you can assume that there's not a ton of creativity you know creative liberty to be taken there but I don't know the whole concept of like let's get in this dead person's head and try to figure <laughs> out what they were thinking at the time a hundred years ago to mm -hmm. me um, mm, <laughs> it's like, I, I feel maybe that we should give more uh, legitimacy to performers and conductors now yeah and too that's why I mean, sometimes uh, it goes kind of back to like competitions where some people get totally disregarded just based on their interpretation, where sometimes interpretations are a little too 
wild or if you're playing Mozart like Tchaikovsky it's like okay but <laughs> there's also um I, I feel like we do like at least younger students who are going into competitions they get totally like disregarded for any interpretation ideas that they might have so in a way like there there has to be some like middle ground to respect what the composer wrote but to also have some liberties to do again like individuality like he wants to sure. acknowledge that that goes right back to what Shostakovich was all about too mm -hmm. um and it's totally fine yeah. again it's totally fine to hear you know be judging a competition or an audition and to hear an interpretation that you don't personally resonate with right you are entitled to that you're entitled to we all have our favorite performers and performances you are entitled mm -hmm. to that opinion I think the issue is when we assert ourselves as the authority as far as like, well, I am a Shostakovich scholar, therefore I know that this is not what he would have wanted. I'm making decisions based on his, like on his behalf. And it really is like, mm -hmm. I don't know that you have the authority <laughs> to just like assign yourself the role of Shostakovich's beneficiary. Like I, I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> as soon as people start yeah. staking their claims and I'm the authority on this and I get to decide which interpretation is correct rather than which interpretation I prefer there's a big difference there mm -hmm. yeah it's like since when did Shostakovich come out of the ground and talk to you about that like I mean okay like have your ideas yes of course but like it shouldn't be one way or no way. Well, that is going to be it on our conversation about Shostakovich. Uh, thank you so much for listening. If you have any feedback for us, please email us. We would love to hear your feedback. I'm sure we're going to get lots of responses that were like, their analysis wasn't in-depth enough. Well, that's not the point, but you could still email us and tell us how you feel. Uh, we will read it and we will, you know, take it into consideration. If there's anything that you want us to talk about, a specific article or a piece of music or a general topic or concept, please email it to us. If you want to be on the show, if you are a, a, a music theorist or musicologist and you want to be on the show and talk to us, please, we would love <laughs> to have you on the show next season. So email us what you want us to talk about or email us your work or an article that you've written or anything that you think uh, more people should be reading and discussing. Uh, we really want to hear about it. Thank you so much for listening and we will I'm still so bad at these <laughs> Stay tuned for our next episode. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Have a good week, and we will talk to you next Friday. Bye. Music clears out. <laughs> yes.